Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this week's podcast. I am delighted to have a fascinating true leader, an inspiring leader, who ended his uh, career in the army, though he could have gone on as, as a general. Uh, he um, was the commandant at the Royal Military Academy Santos, one of the best leadership institutions in the world, bar none. Uh, he was an operational brigade commander, and now he's made that unusual move of going from being a general in the army uh, and also he was the military secretary in charge of everybody's careers and things like that, to being the CEO of a business. Uh, it's in the charity sector. It does an amazing job, particularly I think its high point was in the toughest times of the pandemic. But we've already had a fascinating conversation. An hour will not be enough to discuss the kind of things we need to discuss. Without further ado, I will let him introduce himself. Good morning, I'm David Rutherford-Jones, known by many people as David RJ. I am a former soldier of 34 years. I loved all of that. And, and for the last few years, I've been chief executive of Morden College. We're a charity and we operate in the UK care sector. We provide homes, love, need a lot of that, support, care for about 300 or so older people on two sites in South London. And we also have a grant giving outreach program for other older people in our country who would like to stay for as long as possible living in their own homes, but don't really have the means to be able to do so. And that's where we come in. And that's me. Good morning, Jonathan. <laughs> Good morning, David. Well, look, lovely to have you on because the connection is wonderful. I mean, you were um, chief of staff to General the Lord Danner uh, in his early career. You also are, are deeply respected by General Sir Simon Mayle. Uh, you and he, it's mutual, I'm afraid. You and he walk the hills, uh, not not as vagabonds, but it's uh, you just yeah. go out and travel travel the world and yeah. uh, trek in the Alps and various other places, the Atlas Mountains. I think you began and Pyrenees, uh, and also Roger Weatherby, uh, the CEO yeah. of Weatherby's Bank, uh, was an officer in your regiment. So, look, wonderful having you on the series, David. We've already had great chats, as I said. Let's begin with, you know, as the commandant at Santos, it, it is the uh, the institution that really helps the army create its officer corps. You have to pass through it. It is a, a, a rigorous selection process. It varies in time. I did two years there to get through uh, as a regular officer another year afterwards. But, but otherwise, in that time, and we were just saying, that if we look at politics, we look at the police, perhaps the fire service, the ambulance, they desperately need that investment in their teams and their leaders, which the army luckily does. And it's, I think it's not just for war fighting or peacekeeping, uh, the others need it. But, but for you, what does inspiring leadership mean, David? Well, I think if, if I put it in the context of me being in a team being led, Jonathan, then inspiring leadership for me is leadership, is leadership that I personally grow to respect and trust, but also leadership that is sort of positive, energizing, and has a positive influence 
on the team gives us a strong sense of purpose. And I think it's almost as simple as that, but it, but of course it's not quite as simple as that. So that that that, it, that requires the leader to be of such character and integrity that that all of that is generated within our team because of the individual leading us. And you know, I've seen some incredibly inspiring leaders. But I think I would also say that you know, leadership is not a popularity contest. I mean, it's a lot of things, isn't it? And and of course, it's nice to be liked. But I've never seen it as a popularity contest. You need the people you need to trust and respect you. Actually, you don't need everybody. I, that's probably the biggest lesson I've learned here at Morden College. Um, but obviously it helps to be liked by everybody if that can be achieved. Um, and I think that's an important counterbalance to that, for, to that first point. So my point is that I have been very inspired, not just by people who have motivated me, given me a sense of purpose, you know, it's kind of been fun, that sort of thing. But I've also been inspired by people who have had the courage to make a very difficult uh, decision. You know, people who make tough decisions can be inspiring too, is my point. Mm. No, I think it's very true. And and in your life that's brought you to this point today uh, as the leader that others have said you're inspiring, it, the nice thing is about inspiring leaders, they never describe themselves as that. And you go, no, 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 I'm I'm just rather rather an, an idle leader, which we had a laugh about it because we, we also know you work jolly hard. It's um, it's that, that aim yeah. to, to look gravitas and have presence, not in a false way, but just to keep the calm. Yeah. You know, chaos uh, is contagious. Calm is contagious. So I think I would imagine, particularly during the pandemic, which was certainly what everybody reported, th- th- what you did with Morden College was was almost like a role model for how the other places should have been done. With I think if, if I'm right, you only had sadly one person who died. Yeah. Whereas many other organisations in your peer group lost a lot of people. Yeah. I don't say lost them. Exactly. They didn't get lost in the garden. As my brother, who's a surgeon, would say, when my brother died, he said he didn't just get lost. You know, I'll go and find him down the bottom of the garden. I think when my yeah. father was killed, I always thought he got lost and he yeah. was away in Singapore somewhere. And one day he would come back having been lost. Yeah. But but actually, put it. we have to face into this and not get this sort of uh wokeism where we talk about oh they've, they've moved on no they've died we're all gonna yeah. die and we've got to face it but um you've had a, a really interesting life and and i think a lot of the finest leaders that i've met the men and women have had some challenging times as they grew yeah. up it, it, it made them who they are to try and overcome that uh to seek an understanding of who they are and to show that they're good enough what shaped you on the journey? Just perhaps spend yeah. about 10, 10 minutes on your well, life. Yeah, it's a bit of a, I think I need to just go back a little bit to the beginning um, because I, what I would say is the first 25 years teed me up, shaped, if you like, um, my understanding of how to take on the next 35 years, which is where I think my achievements were. So I don't think I really achieved anything other than be me and survive in the first 25 years. And that's going to seem quite odd to you, but I... Let me just explain what I mean by that as briefly as I can. I grew up in a family of four children. My mother was absolute megastar, died last year. And my father was an incredibly difficult man. He was a lot older than my mother. He born of, of the First World War, came through the Second World War. Totally different generation of people, really, who, who found their way you know, difficultly, I think, after the war. And so my father was very challenging. He was distant. His standards 
were beyond high. The, you know, his his ex expectation of us was outrageous. Uh, you know, he wouldn't tolerate mistakes. And I got to the sort of end of my school life, really having thoroughly enjoyed school, but not achieved anything. I mean, I still sadly only have two A-levels to my name, D-grade and five A-levels, and I never passed maths O-level, which I'm very proud that I went all the way through my army career with maths O-level, because in fact, it was a criteria to get a regular commission. So I don't know how I did that. But the, but the, but the, but the point is, I got out of school with no self-confidence. And that was the key thing. I didn't know really who I was drifted around for a few months and then joined the army. I actually, you know, the arm, Santos was okay. It was a bit of a, another place for me to hide, if I'm honest, and kind of work out my journey. I didn't particularly enjoy it. And what was interesting is when I was commandant, the, the, the academy sergeant major on my first day kind of walks in with my commandant's, uh, my report, well, bloody funny. And well, actually it was the truth. You know, I came in uh, in the top, in the bottom 50%. You know, and, and it said something like, you know, because my first choice was the green jackets and said, you know, he could never have been a green jacket, but we hope the cavalry will, will be able to cope with him sort of thing. But it, funny enough, it did say that I was a kind person and that I showed some promise. So there you go. So those early years were difficult. And I, but, but what I would say is this, that when I was commissioned, you know, I knew on that day that something great was going to happen in the sense that it, I felt there was a kind of something new for me. I was freedom. I was going off to join this regiment that was in Cyprus. You know, it was adventurous to a new world. I sort of think I understood soldiering enough by then to feel I could do some of it. And I joined a wonderful re regiment and, and, and was a pretty reckless subaltern. But I think at that point, it could have gone one or two ways. And this is the point I want to make to you, is the influence that others can have on you and why leaders need to be so careful about how they play their influential cards particularly with the younger people they, they are leading. Because I was lucky. I had some outstanding leaders in my life from the get-go when I commanded. Um, Peter Hervey, my first squad leader, Tony Wells, commanding officer, Peter Fishbourne, who commanded me a, a bit later, and then a bit later in my first brigadier, uh, um, captain's job, I worked for a guy called David Jenkins, who ultimately persuaded me to stay in the army. And so I took the staff exam and... And like my A-levels, I took that three times, got it on the third mentored by David Jenkins, and I went to staff college. But just before I went to staff college, I was given a chance by the regiment to command a squadron because I had a bit of time to kill. And I commanded my squadron alongside my dear friend, Simon Mayo, uh, who actually has been a strong influence on me. And we had such fun. You know, we lent on each other, gave each other that operational strength to really command well on the operational tour, but we had a lot of fun. And so I went to staff college, a completely different guy. I was married and in love. I had two amazing little winky children who were quite irritating, if I'm honest, but absolutely loved them to bits. You know, I had passed the staff exam. I loved commanding my squadron and learned what serve to lead was about. And I felt I was on my way. And I very privileged to come out of staff college, which I loved as a as a brigade chief of staff. Now the, now, the point of saying all that is that the first bit was tough. And I, you know, I could have so, could have so easily gone wrong for me, I think, if I hit the wrong influences at that critical young 20s age. But actually what I had is these incredibly inspiring people who, for whatever reason, believed in me and encouraged me. And I learned from them, you know, um, yes, they had to get a grip of my ridiculous antics. 
and they weren't just you know the soldiers there were some well, what, was, what was your best what was your best antic what was your wildest antic this young officer with two other young officers we had a, we were in Panama we our mess and there was a mess just sort of almost next door to us um R-A-O-C the Royal Army Ordnance Corps and um and anyway one night we'd had a regimental party they they were around but weren't at it but some of them probably were I can't remember and there was this guy that was really kind of light anyway long story we decided to go and, you know, kind of lob a thunder flash in his room. <laughs> so we went and did it, filled a pillow full of uh, feathers, lobbed it and felt really proud about what we did. It transpired that the director of the Army Ordnance Corps or One Star or something <laughs> was visiting and staying in that room. You know, <laughs> Jonathan, that was one of the worst moments of my life. And I learned a big, harsh lesson there. And that is, you know, it's not what happens in life that really matters. You've got to, it's what you do next that really matters. And we were a little slow in coming forward to put our hand up because we were so shocked by the <laughs> we'd done. And I should have bloody, you know, we should have damn well gone into the action the following morning and said we did it, but we didn't. I mean, it all came out and washed off shortly afterwards. But, but I, you know, there's a little lesson for aspiring leaders or youngsters on, on listening to this is, you know, when it goes wrong, it goes wrong. That's, that's what happens. Is what happens next that really matters, and um, so there's a little lesson attached to that story. But it, we thought we were so good, but boy, do we! <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like we share the story of Tom Ryle, who hopefully yeah. you, can, you can get on this series. Uh, you, you should get him on this. So I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll get him up here. Yeah, he'd be quite entertaining. I think yeah, he's also well, very competent. Obviously, yeah. don't tell him I told him that. <laughs> yeah. Go to his head. And um, what an amazing story! And and then. Let's, let's go from a fascinating life you had to, if you step back, I, yeah. I mean, I think they describe us as we sort of, there's the experiential part of our lives and the observer of our lives. Yeah. And, and to be able to play both of those requires great wisdom. Yeah. And at times I've done one or the other, but to do both, it's work in progress. But let's say you're the observer looking at the experiential part of your life. What would you have described as your happiest, proudest moment of many, I'm sure, uh, and what you learned from it? And what would you describe as your darkest moment, either personally or in a career wise? And what did you learn from such a tough time? Yeah, well, I think if I look at it in two halves, the first on, on a private personal level and second professionally, I think um, there's no doubt about it that, you know, things around my family are when I'm happiest. It's full stop. And you know, I was incredibly happy the day I married Sarah and we're still married all those years later. And, and you know, incredibly, you know, when our children were born, we were lucky they, they came out in good nick and, and it's been a happy journey ever since. So I think there's no doubt about it. There's a sort of continuum of happiness that comes around watching your children succeed, you know, being happy in your marriage. And I think that as an underpinning in life is very, is very helpful. Um, so it's very contributory. To having the confidence in your professional life but of course also you know your professional life going well has the same impact the other way and i think that my from my professional point of view i genuinely you know my i i you know i think i've mentioned to you already that i the, to me the team is everything um i'm a passionate supporter of newcastle united football club they're now coming good and everybody would say it would be down to money but i would say that's helped but actually they've got a leader in their manager who is really pulling them together as a team. And it feels like a team to me. And, you know, so it's when I've been in a team that is 
very evidently winning that I have felt the happiest. And, and, and it's almost as simple as that. And I, the Germans have this wonderful phrase, finger spitzengefühl. Yeah. Yeah, you, you know, when, when you have that team like that, and indeed the, the Manchester, the Newcastle United um, manager was talking about this the other day, but in, in articulating, articulating it in a different way. But when you have a team that is, that really has come together and is, and is winning, you can almost kind of touch it. It's, it's an extraordinary thing. There's an atmosphere around it that just can. And when I was a troop leader, I was privileged to, um, I think it's the first time that, you know, I did something okay. And I came, we had a troop competitions, which were huge fun and unbelievably competitive. And my, was, I think we were 14 troops then. And I, anyway, I came second. So I wasn't, we weren't a winner, but we'd come from the back a bit and, you know, went up the points during it. And it was that feeling, because we were, we, 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 we were, I think we only missed it by a couple of points. And I, I, I felt we had one. That's the point. It, it felt an incredibly happy moment. And you, 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 in that moment, you can really feel that you could do anything with that team. And, and, and I suppose that's the, that's the highest achievement in a, in a way. And goodness knows armies go into very difficult circumstances. Mm. But there would have been wonderful moments for those leaders at all levels with their teams mm. when they would have mm. felt it. Mm. There would be some sadness too. But actually, the strength of the team can overcome that. So it, I think it is about around team success that I've been my happiest. Mm, mm. And, and it's that idea and how you develop strong teams that I've tried to instill in those I've been privileged to, to lead and, and while I was at Santos. I'm a lot more around that, but you'll get the point. Yeah, wonderful. And then what about learning from a darkest moment in personal life and in your career? Well, in my personal life, I lost my sister um, in February 2021. She was my friend. Um, she was our elder sister. She was a great team leader. It was bloody difficult because it was in the Delta. Uh, you know, I, we were locked down there that period, weren't we? It was February time. So difficult to say goodbye to her. And I, I, and what I found interesting about that, Jonathan, is that I was totally unprepared for how difficult it is to lose a sibling. And I, you know, I think you will definitely understand this in that we tend to take our siblings for granted because, you know, we grow up together. But, of course, we share so much when we're younger. And mm. I think in particular, my sister was our team leader during some very difficult moments with my father. And, you know, she had the confidence to sort of help us as the younger ones to come through it. So I was totally unprepared for how difficult I found that. I think partly I was institutionally knackered. It had been a long journey from March 20 through to, you know, that point with the pandemic doing the job I do. So that kind of probably compounded it, but it was a very dark moment for me. And I and I happily admit here that I had a little bit of support from um, a, a therapist at the time just to get myself back on track. It wasn't much, but actually I, I, I encourage people who just find themselves in a bit of a rut sometimes. To me, I was in that rut totally unexpectedly. I had, it just caught me off guard, but I knew I needed to do something about it because I'm leading a team here that need, sort of needed me in the sense that I was their CEO at a very continuing difficult moment for this charity because of the pandemic. So slightly complicated answer to a straightforward thing. My sister dying was a very dark moment for me. I think- And, and just um, staying with that one, firstly, I'm really sorry to hear about your sister and really um, respect you for sharing the fact that like me, uh, you've had a dark moment. And during that time, 
you needed help. And I, I had a superb therapist from the house group in London, Dr. Amy McCarthy, and she was brilliant for me uh, about- As a story, we used the same group. Yeah, yeah, amazing. Rosie, I keep saying turtle, and she gets quite cross about that, is Tolatel. Yeah. Is her name, but she's lovely. Very yeah. good. Yeah. They, they, they really yeah. are yeah. high-quality, professional, CBT-based yeah. therapists. And and I think, uh, I mean, uh, my uh, stepdaughter, Alana, uh, who's just here in, in our home in Lincolnshire uh, at the moment, uh, chatting with Lee, my wife, um, she is a trained uh, sort of psychotherapist going going through training and helping a lot of people in the NHS. And we were discussing this the other day, and one of my other daughters is just um, about to go through some therapy. She's been talking about it for ages. Uh, and, and we all said, everybody actually should go through some therapy. You need to go back and look over. Uh, I mentioned to you, I'm off on the Hoffman process on the 2nd of December yeah. uh, for nine days. And, and that's going to be very deep. Yeah. Back to my childhood and how it's affecting my behavior today. Yeah. And, and, and I think we all need to actually know ourselves. And, and if you just, a lot of people go to a complete crash because they haven't addressed themselves mm. and, and some of the issues that went on in childhood that, that are, you're living your past now, still yeah. living it now, yeah, but we, we don't, we don't recognize that. So I just want to just acknowledge and thank you for, for sharing that because everybody goes, Oh, well, you know, he's a really successful general and a CEO. He's, he's never had any challenges. Well, <laughs> they don't know you and, they, and yeah. they don't know that we're all human. And only the strong can be vulnerable enough to ask for yeah. help. And I've discovered, Jonathan, that just just sticking on this point for a moment, that I that there are more people out there than perhaps we otherwise admit or you know, who probably would benefit from a little bit of that help. And I, you know, it was my wife Sarah who suggested I did, and then we she has a goddaughter who is a therapist, and I had a private chat with her, and I just gave her. I, I'm too close to her; she couldn't have been the therapist, but. But I gave her the why I was finding struggling, really. I just couldn't understand. I was, you know, I'm, I'm a glass half full, upbeat kind of guy. And I just couldn't wrestle with the fact that I was in this rut. And she said, you know, I know somebody who can really help you get out of that. And it will be short lived. But so I couldn't agree with you more, actually. And I, I say, please, I did it. And not least I owed it to the people around me to get out of the bloody rut, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, because you become a bit, you know, you become a bit boring, you know, in, and uh, so it was a very but, but, but just just staying with that one, David. Sorry to yeah. add to it, really. Many who served in the military might be listening would recognise the idea of a six-month operational tour. You did a yeah. number, number of them, uh, but then you come home to recover, do some light training, prepare, see your families. You just have some downtime to recover from the intensity of being always on with yeah. lim limited sleep, uh, danger, perhaps yeah. death, mm -hmm. mayhem going on. Um, but in COVID, it, it was like four back-to-back six-month tours. Yeah, it was relentless. With, with no time up. And for CEOs like you or leaders at yeah. many levels, it, it really got to their mental health because they were giving yeah. so much of themselves thinking it was a bit of a sprint when actually it was a triathlon mm -hmm. and no yeah. one told them how many laps around the pool they'd do before they transition. 
to another how many times they were going to cycle, to another transition how many times they're going to run, and then they were going to be told, go back to the pool. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know. Goodness, Jonathan. I mean, I, I could, there's quite a lot I could say around that, but you know, we probably haven't got time today. But I, I mean, I, I will happily say on this podcast with you that the toughest leadership challenge of my life, bar none, was trying to lead Morden College through that pandemic. Mm. And there are lots of reasons why that. You know, I think the privilege of the army, I'd never probably really thought of it this way, but the privilege of an army is that from the very get-go through your basic training and then onwards you are preparing for crisis that's all we do and then eventually we we enjoin crisis a war a, an operation other than war an insurgency whatever it might be a fireman strike even i got involved in that when i was a brigade commander but i i think um you know so armies prepare very well very competently for crisis and when that crisis comes along everybody naturally fits into their place and it comes together and you spend a few days kind of getting into it when you deploy out there, but you do and and they're in their lane and they're off. And then because the idea is that we've developed these very strong, competent teams, you can ride the hard moments, even though some of those hard moments are very hard indeed. I think what I found in this world is that trying to gear a civilian organization wherein my, most of my 180, 200 odd employees are there because it's kind of vocational and they want to be in care, not because they want to be in care in crisis, if I can put it that way. Trying to get them to gear up to what I was seeing in February 2020 as a major crisis. And oh, by the way, it's an enemy. You may not be able to see it. And like all enemies, it's got a target. And our 300 very vulnerable older people are that target. You know, and I, I and it's trying to get them to think like that and therefore act differently, because the point about crisis is that if you don't act differently, you won't succeed. And I, if I may, I, you know, I, I you know, it's so easy isn't it, to sort of get, be rude to other people. But I, I sitting on a number of committees around the place. And I, I think what I'm seeing is, is that the organizations, everybody waited for the prime minister to say something. But he's the prime minister. How the hell does he know how to run an NHS through a crisis? So how much preparation for a major respiratory pandemic did the NHS really do? And how quickly were they able to gear up to it? And I, I, I hope that it's in this inquiry, we thoughtfully and helpfully, constructively as a country look at that so that we are more prepared in future. Mm-hmm. So I think it was incredibly hard work and we didn't have the casualties that other people had. I mean, it was it was brutally harrowing for. I didn't really realise how tough it had been. You know, including my sort of great friend Gary Lashko, Chelsea Hospital. They had a, quite a bad dose of it, and you know, some people have you know have walked away from care because it was so harrowing, uh, and they felt so unsupported. I think that's a totally different uh, issue. But happy to comment. But I, so yeah, you know, it was really difficult, and the lessons are huge and need to be. Uh, you know, we need to walk into the lessons, not step back and say, oh, we did kind of really well. That would be really totally the wrong thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know whether that's helpful. but Incredibly, incredibly yeah. helpful. And particularly to leaders listening around the world in over 120 different countries uh, that they listen to this, uh, at least. If you were to give them a tip for, as you say, preparing for a crisis, 
because there's going to be another one. We don't know what it is. Yeah. We're, we're dealing with a number of crises at the moment, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, energy crisis, cost of living crisis, um, uh, autocracies versus democracy. There's a range of really serious crises that we've got at the moment, which could get us down if we were to focus on all of them. You get quite gloomy and never sort of leave home. Um, but But if you were to give a business leaders a, a tip about about preparing for a crisis what would be your top tip well i would say that you can do a lot of preparation for crisis in-house what, what the reason i say that is that i was at something not long ago um i went it was an nhs sort of thing and i was asked to speak but I, and i was asked a question about you know preparing for crisis and i said well you know, in in the uh, commercial world, you know, which is essentially where I am, and, and I'm running, as you quite rightly said, running a business, really. But, you know, people talk about business continuity, and there are great organizations out there that will charge you a fortune. And everybody abrogates that responsibility, which I think is a responsibility of the leader, actually, to some organization to come in and put the framework together, which is sort of documentary, and there's a few lectures and that sort of thing. And I've done a bit of that, and it's, I just think it's nonsense. And I'm not, you know, I don't want to criticize organizations that make it their their, their world to, to, to do business continuity training for organizations like mine. But I think the responsibility is on me. Because actually, when that crisis comes, I'm going to have to lead this organization through that crisis. So if I haven't really thought about it, if I haven't really thought about, you know, I, before coronavirus came around, I always thought norovirus was going to be the terrible thing we were going to get hit with. You know, it seems to be periodic. In this country, actually, we did have norovirus just before the pandemic, and it was kind of okay. Um, but I used to use that as, as, as you know, how are we going to manage the cross infection and all of this sort of thing, and what were we going to do if we really got it badly in various of our residences? How would we keep safe but keep life going and all of this sort of thing? And it, it takes quite a bit of thinking, actually, in the detail. So, and I wanted to know that I had been through that preparation with our team. So that when the moment came, we had done that preparation ourselves. So my encouragement to leaders is, you know, you could get a, somebody in to come and give you some advice, but actually be 100% at the helm of that preparation for crisis yourself. Mm -hmm. Bring your team with you, because that way, when it comes, you will be much more cohesive. Yeah, well yeah. said. Very good advice. Thank you, yeah. David. Um, it, it is about personal leadership rather than abrogation. Yes, by so. all means. Bring in, yeah. bring in some, get some advice, but then get on and do it. You know your business better than anybody else would do. Um, I, I'm always interested in, with with the the wisdom of hindsight. We, we, I think it Steve Jobs said, you join up the dots afterwards looking back and, and you can make sense of your career now. Yeah. But, but going back to that, in that 25 year period when you were still, learning preparing you for the next 35 years if you met yourself age 16 what bit of advice now with the wisdom of those three four years um would you give to the young this matters but don't worry about that well what, what um, you get your hair cut <laughs> <laughs> i had quite long hair back then much i only had it that long because i knew it really irritated my father so I was part of the problem. That, you know, let's just be quite clear about that. But um, it's a really great question. I think uh, I would say two things, one of which I've touched on already. The first is that listen. 
So if I, I eventually had my found my way with my father, but it, it was uh, it was at a point when he was very ill. I'd just been appointed to command the Light Dragoons, and I knew when I sat with him that he was immensely proud uh, of me. And we talked for a long time, and then he died a few weeks later. So I reconciled our differences together too late in life. When I was reflecting back on my life with him, you know, I was. You know, I was sad in a way because I was remembering some moments where he wasn't actually, you know, the bugger that we all thought he was, although he definitely could be that person, no doubt about it. But he used to offer some great advice. You know, I remember he always said to me, you know, never make an enemy of anybody you don't have to. And, you know, what a great line. That stuck with me for the rest of my life. I'd rather forgotten that he had said it. In fact, strangely enough, years later, somebody else mentioned that to me. But I, but I think, um, you know, he, you know, he told me, um, once to embrace difference. I think, you know, I never, not sure I really understood what he meant, but actually the context we were sailing, and it's a long story, but, but you know, so I think my first point is listen to, from a, a young age, listen, take it in. Don't be that sort of brash, you know, defensive, slightly rebellious person all the time. I think there, are, there is some great advice around you from your young teens that you can begin to absorb. And the second thing, which I've really touched on already, is it took me a long while to realize that it actually it's not what happens in life, it's what ha happens next in life that matters. And I think, you know, if I was a bit more, um, if I knew that from an early age and really understood it, I would have been a little less impetuous, a little less stupid, if I'm honest, in my sort of late teens and definitely as a sultan. But I did learn that lesson. And actually, I really, it's another one of those points that I've really driven home, you know, to cadets and scientists and that sort of thing. You know, it's what you do next that matters the most. Mm. Um, it, 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 it's, a, it's a wonderful bit of advice. It's, it's not what happens to you, it's what you do next. Uh, and it really fits with, with that, that old two and a half thousand year old Stoic philosophy. The only thing you can control is your thoughts and your actions. And yeah. events happen to you. It's not the fact that the events happen. It's, it's how you handle it that marks the yeah. inspiring leader from, from the very average or expiring leader. And talking of expiring leaders, we were talking about how disappointing many of the politicians are that we have at the moment. It's very easy for us to sit as armchair critics of <laughs> politicians. Um, but, you know, you try and do it. But, but that we really felt there was a... A key point, and and as we go around the inspiring leadership compass and the research and what makes high performing leaders and teams, the, the first one that we always come to is moral quotient, uh, and the the discussion that we had is when when you lose your integrity, you lose everything. Yeah, and and and, and this this interesting point that so many people are going, oh well, you know, Boris only lied a few times, but but the point is that. Integrity, when it eats away, and I know at times when I haven't done what I said, I, my trust quotient was completely eroded and I had to become trustworthy. And that's yeah. where you, your own people are judging you by your example, not the fine words that you can say. Mm. Uh, and you, uh, it's, there's a whole uh, audio book I'm listening to on the topic of trust. And I think I'll do a book review about it when 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 it comes out. And I'm, I'm listening to it at the moment, but it's this point of, it's your example. If you if someone's had an affair or something and, and the trust is broken between a couple, how are you going to rebuild it? Or is it all over? Has it has it finished yeah. forever? And and I think this moral quotient, behavior, um, your values, your principles 
lose integrity, you lose your moral compass, your true north. What's what's your build on a tip that you'd give people about how important this is? Well, I think that individual integrity is, as you say. So I think when you when you do lose your integrity, you are you are at least at risk of losing everything. You know, I'm sure relationships can be repaired, and you know, I, and in a sense, that should be encouraged, shouldn't it? So, but I think you know, you as a person lose a bit of you when you cross that line. In a professional context, when individuals do that, I think in a way, you really do. It's very hard to come back from it, and. And part of the reason for that, I think, is not just that you, the leader, who are asking people to do so many things. I mean, after all, look at the British Army or armies. You know, as a leader, ultimately, you're going to find yourself asking the people you lead to do things that are fundamentally against human psyche. You know, it's not normal to go to work and put your life on the line. So, so you know, if somebody's going to ask me to do that, then I'm, you know, bloody well need to know that I trust them and their judgment and everything else. And, and actually, I could apply that same high level of interpretation of integrity, if you like, in, in my day job here and, and how we went through the pandemic. I, I knew I had, you know, I had to ha have my staff really trust and respect me for what I was going to ask them to do, because what I was asking them to do was not what they do normally every day. You know, everybody got re-rolled because you know, people had to isolate because they there was no testing. So at one point we were 40% staff down. So with the remaining staff, you know, we were providing over 7,000 items of food, beverage, medicines, and household goods to our residents every week in a sustainment program. We were trying to protect our sites genuinely to keep the bug out and keep people out we didn't want. We had a communication system that was about, you know, buddying up and talking to residents on the phone and constantly making sure they were informed and happy and that we were catching them when they were down. So, you know, I really was asking a hell of a lot of the staff and they had to trust and respect me. So my a failure of integrity uh, as me, the leader in that context, just in the same as the armies I just described, would I think be catastrophic. Mm. But I think also just very quickly, that there's a sort of team integrity. There's a kind of corporate integrity. And I think we sometimes underplay the value of that. And we could go on for that a lot. But I, I very much believe that here at Warden College, people need to see us as an honest organisation. And there's quite a lot behind what I mean by that. But you'll get the points. It's, it's individual and, and, and team, more, and corporate, if you like. But I prefer to say team. Mm. Yeah, it, it's interesting. There's, uh, it's everything. It, it is everything. Mm. And when I look back at moments when I'd lost trust or done the wrong thing and, you know, my judgment uh was questioned that that's terrible yeah. and you really it, it's almost you can't really get it back you you have to relearn rebuild yourself and go out intending to do the right thing yeah and and imagine almost in my case my late father that you know he's there with me and no one else is there but he's yeah. there and i can see myself and he can see me and he goes yeah. I'm, proud, I'm proud of you son you're doing yeah. the right thing but uh, I, I think you need this this team of supporters around you mentally. They may be yeah, long, yeah. long gone. Long and gone. I think, you know, going back to my brilliant, childish, well-executed attack on the combat supplies officer's mess all those years ago with my friends, you know, the point is we didn't immediately own up to it. That's really what I was saying there. 
Mm. You know, and I learned a hard lesson there because I knew that when I, you know, the days later when we were in the commanding officer's office, you know, we all got extras beyond our wildest imagination, extraordinary officers. But I knew that that man who I respected so much and has become a huge mentor and close friend in my life, I knew that he was looking at me and saying, is, is honesty an issue with these officers? Mm. You know, have, have I got a dud here? I knew I had to prove him wrong. Yeah. You know, I, I, you know, that my point about is, you know, it's not what happens is what you do next, but it's, but it's also being holding your t- integrity intact, however big or small the issue. Yeah. I, 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 do you know, Jonathan? It's, it's always trite, isn't it? But it just is the sodding glue, and 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 if people really got that, I think we'd be a better world. Yeah, and and it's so much the case of between stimulus, something happens or someone's yeah. rude to you and your response to that situation. Often people go, I couldn't help myself. Stimulus happened. I responded. Yeah. But actually, there's yes. this choice in the middle. You, you, choice you've got always a choice. And, 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 and a choice. we often abrogate that and go, I couldn't help myself. It's the circumstances. Yeah. They made me do this. He made yeah. me. And as this is very much going on today. They're going, well, you owe it to me. I, you need to make me yeah. happy. You, you've offended me. You've yeah. offended and me. And by the way, it's not always somebody else's problem. No. Look at yourself in the mirror. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. You, you've um, got to take yeah. personal personal accountability, yeah. personal ownership, yeah. choosing whether you're going to be offended or not. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, even last night, I, I found with such a busy household with three dogs and puppy and and grandchildren and and family staying and then you know i had a lot to do and i i found myself getting terribly grumpy and just stressed yeah. and i whoa breathe what's going on here you know you yeah. have a choice and and yeah. i i just acted on the thing that was stressing me and i was anxious about and and dealt with it and then yeah. oof, everything had gone i was like hey hello here i am again they went so is grumpy grandpa gone? Now I go, your grumpy grandpa's <laughs> exactly. gone. I've noticed. Well, we've all been grumpy. <laughs> exactly. Little, 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 yeah. little grace. I can be grumpy too sometimes. Yeah, we can. Yeah. But, it, yeah. but we choose. Yeah. We choose our attitude and we choose our mood. Um, hey, there's so many things we can do. I'll just dip into one or two things. I think I'm very interested in health, uh, particularly since you're in the health. Uh, yeah. Well, we're in the energy business, aren't we? Because, you know, we've got a personal energy to then uh, get discretionary life energy from the people, whether it be when you were commandant at Santos or whether you were brigade commander on operations or here you are as a CEO. But what what are your top tips on physical health, what you do now at your age and, and looking after your mental health? We've already talked about this a bit, but um, just keeping it going. Now you've you've had some helpful therapy. What, what are you doing for both of those two things that you'd pass on as a tip to others? Okay, faith music, trekking, particularly in mountains, exercise, and fun. So on the physical side, I go to a gym that we were very privileged to have here at Morton College. I, I, I don't get there enough, but my aim is to be there a minimum of three week, three days a week on the cross train of 40 minutes at whatever level it is, 10. So, And I find that keeps me fit for a guy my age. And, and it also it's a good way to build up to doing a mountain trek. I love walking in mountains. I do it with Simon Mayer a lot. We've done it in Corsica around Europe. We, this summer we went over the highest peaks in um, Pyrenees for seven days. There's something amazingly cathartic. You, you have to work bloody hard to get to the top. So there's a kind of reward in that. 
And then you find yourself, you know, I don't know, 7,600 feet as we did on one day, sitting on a on a little mountain pass having a lunch. And it's like the whole world, both metaphorically and physically and every in every other, in every respect, to be honest, is beneath you. So there's a very cathartic piece about being in mountains. I mean, I love water as well and coastlines and rivers, but it, it's there's something about mountains for me and and and, and properly walking, trekking, and doing it with somebody who's a friend, who's a good partner to walk with. The silences can be long. The, the the chat can be much you know it's it's very special and i get a huge amount out of it the second thing is music you know when i'm on my own at home i don't watch the tv much um i do enjoy reading um but actually what i really do is listen to music if you listen to my playlist you wouldn't know who i am it's very broad range lots of genre but i absolutely love music and i can lose myself in music um jonathan truly so and the and the first thing really the top of the list is 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 faith. Um, I have a strong faith. It's very private to me, um, you know. I I but it does mean a lot to me. And I I have found, particularly as I've got older and, and tested with it, but understood it better. Uh, it's been helpful, and it was certainly helpful when my mother died in 2020 and my sister died in 2021, for example. Um, and I would imagine that if we'd had a bit more of a harrowing time as opposed to just a bloody difficult time at Morden College, I, I'm sure my faith would have been helpful in that context as well. And then finally, it's about fun, isn't it? I mean, I have tried to have fun all my life. It is absolutely true that in those first 25 years, I probably had too much, got the priorities wrong. But I do try and inject humour, you know, laugh at yourself as much as you laugh at others who take themselves too seriously, um, have a laugh laugh with people, do things that create fun for others. We've just taken our leaders away for a few days and, you know, a third of the time was actually just laughing. Mm. So I think fun is really cathartic if you get it right, particularly mm. having fun with other people. Yeah. So there you fun. go. That's kind of... I love it. I love it. Um, I'll pick the next one. Um, resilience. Um, you know, you, you described, particularly during the pandemic, how, how much resilience is needed um but also thinking back to your days uh on operations uh, and there if we look at other parts of the world i'm interested in you know the combat and the the war that's going on in ukraine with yeah. those ukrainian soldiers since 2014 they've been fighting you know back in crimea that's a a, a lot of experience they've gained but it, it's been harrowing and of course the country's now having its infrastructure being taken out because Russia is no small foe to take on, and it's going to go on for many years, I fear. What, what's your advice to, uh, what do you think will be happening in Ukraine? You know, you, you predicted that yeah. COVID would be a long time. What's going to be going on with, with the invasion yeah. of Ukraine? Well, a quick one on personal resilience. I, I can't remember, I may, may have mentioned it earlier, but I think pressure definitely comes when you, when you don't know what you're doing as a leader. I can't emphasize that more. I've occasionally realized I've gone into something and I haven't been in command of, all, of my whole brief. And when you think about it, that's just crap. It's also irresponsible. You know, you have a responsibility. Uh, you know, you should be accountable. And, and a part of that is understanding what the hell it is you're meant to be doing. So don't put yourself under pressure um, uh, because you'll find your resilience very quickly wanting if you don't know what you're doing. So I just say that as a single point because I've, I've seen it in others. And I learned it myself the hard way many years ago. The second thing I'd say on, on Ukraine and, and 
I mean, I think it's interesting, you know, you, you know, Jonathan, I absolutely love this country. I am a true patriot. I love Great Britain. I love everything it stands for. I cannot stand the decliners and the people who would do this country down. You know, we are, why are, is it that half the world's refugees from crisis want to come here? Because we're benign, tolerant, you know, we're, we're decent people. I, I believe in the decency of the British and, and getting rather bored of, the, of, of people doing us down. I say that because I would have fought for this country no problem at all. I, 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 and however long it took, I would have fought. You come and test our liberties and our freedom, and I will stand by that. And I think if, if, if people can grasp that listening to this, then they'll understand what's going through the mind of those Ukrainians. You know, everything they, they, they own in a personal level, everything that they value as a nation, you know, their independence, their freedom, um, is being tested by Mr. Putin and his monstrous regime. And I, you know, so I think the first point is this personal sense, but also team sense of peoples in nationhood. And we are becoming complacent in the liberal democracies about that. Boy, are we becoming complacent. One day we're going to pay a price if we're not careful. So but I think that is part of the reason why the Ukrainians are being so resilient. I think there's no doubt about it. That resilience is reinforced then because, you know, the right nations in the world, the liberal democracies are standing by their freedom in Ukraine and helping them protect it and recover it by arming them and all the other bits and pieces that we're doing. The slight problem there is we're pushing the thing into a bit of a stalemate, I feel. And, you know, when's it going to end? So I think there has to be an end. And then I think it becomes, it's down to, really great statesmanship and which may not be either ukrainian or russian in the first place but somebody needs to begin to break at the end of this you know there are no winners in war there are none there are just you know to varying degrees of success i doubt ukraine are ever going to get everything back you know but but, but i think russia are going to lose huge the fall for russia is going to be massive and some clever people need to really get that right because i don't know how long they can be resilient in a physical sense in the end you know their their, their electrical infrastructure is down you know he stopped moving the grain you know it's beginning to impact on the world and i just wonder how soon people are going to begin to bore of this i did bore's the wrong word actually i apologize for using that but you know what i mean mm -hmm. but i think you know but their individual resilience is becoming because they love their nation yeah and and you know, and we should love ours more than we do. Yeah, I could just say that on this forum. No, I think you should. I think, and and, and too few people do. It's it's yeah. very it's very easy to be the armchair critic of uh, every of everybody else to, to yeah. run your country down. And and there's times when actually I just stop watching the news. Yeah. Uh, I, I haven't been watching it on the television for many years. I, I found it quite addictive. I couldn't believe how incompetent. The situation and the people in it were about you know five prime ministers in six years so I, yeah it was almost like a a reality tv show but it happened to be our country and it really saddened me how in the eyes of the world let alone in the eyes of our own country we became such a laughing stock in in our yeah. prime minister and i think you know if you're mr putin or mr xi or mr bolsonaro or mr whoever because there are a lot of these tosses around the place you know, I think if you're them, you're looking at the liberal democracies and going, is it all right, really? This freedom thing that you value so much, this democracy thing, 
you've got weak leadership, you're arguing amongst each other, you're giving us the impression that actually what we offer, which is uh, stability, is better. Mm. So we need to be very careful, I think. <clears throat> the Ukrainian crisis was born partly out of our complacency, would be my view. Yeah, no, I think I think you're right. And 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 within these situations, there are teams and teams that people are having to build. Team teams and and developing uh, strong teams has been a key theme of yours. If we were to talk about executive teams in business, um, but your study of thirty <clears throat> thirty five years of leadership has always been looking at building teams from troop to yeah. squadron to um, uh, to regiment brigade. Yeah. What have you seen best done uh, by inspiring leaders uh, or even in your own experience where you they or you took a toxic team where yeah. maybe it had their their sort of military white collar psychopath, but yet yeah. he, he happened to be wearing rank. And I did come across a few of those. I even served for one, but he remained nameless because <laughs> I must respect him. But. Where, where where things have gone toxic how did you turn it around to create a happy fun-loving high-performing team when it when it had gone toxic maybe because of an individual or the culture of the team what would, yeah. what's your advice well i'm a great believer in um you know devolving responsibility downwards so i think we do that very well in the army you know it's important to make everybody Sure that everybody in the in the in, in the organization understands the overarching strategy and intent. You know, we have four strategic aims here and so on and so forth. And it was particularly important, I found, in the pandemic to make sure that the kind of big messages were understood by everybody. But then, you know, life gets too busy once you're in the crisis, not to you know, not to uh, I don't mean abrogate at all, but to, to devolve responsibility and give people the headroom to get on with it. So I genuinely believe that I've tried to practice that in my life. I think giving people that, that headroom, giving them the, the sort of sense of their own freedom to think and, and shape what, how they're going to enjoy the plan you've, you've come up with with your team, really important. But there are always, I'm afraid, uh, toxic players. I've seen them everywhere. I saw them in the army. I've sadly seen more of it outside the army, interestingly, which was a bit of, that's a naive, but a but, but, but bit of a surprise to me. Um, and I think you've got to work with them. You know, why, why is it? That, that team is toxic or that individual is behaving in such a toxic way what what it is what what's it about the kind of structure or the or the sense of purpose that you've given them that may not be right so i think ask yourself a little bit of why and then sort of try and work with them to improve sometimes you can move people around and you know, change their change their put them in another team or something whatever but the bottom line and i know you know i'm i'm sure others would probably say this particularly i suspect some of the soldiers but the bottom line is that it doesn't always work. And then I think my loyalty to the team is far greater than my loyalty to the individual. And, you know, that may be tough to say, but I, that is when you're trying to run an organization through crisis or deliver success, it is the team that needs the priority. But so if you have somebody who is just toxic and is not really, in spite of your efforts, playing into that helpfully, and being a team player, they have to go. Mm. Uh, and I sadly had to do that on three occasions here with senior people. And you know, it's not nice. In fact, it's bloody difficult. Because, you know, I, in fact, my Santos report told me I was kind and I think I genuinely am a kind person. So I, it's not an easy thing for me to do. But I'm, 
but I'm strong enough to do it. You know, as I said earlier, leadership is also not a popularity contest. Mm. So I think that's probably my answer. Um, hopefully not, but if necessary, they got to go. Yeah, yeah. Um, and if you can't change the people, you've got to change the people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Great um, line. And 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 I have come across many times with the different CEOs I've been honoured to work, work with as their trusted advisor in an executive team where they they have someone who is toxic and is affecting the whole of the team yeah. and 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 they they think the organisation revolves around them and yeah. of course they have issues with um, you know post truth if you even use that but they basically can't tell the truth. And they will make you think that it, you're actually losing it rather than them playing with the truth. And um, one of my old CEOs just said, look, you know, if, you, if you've got someone who's a, a white collar psychopath, you need to emigrate to avoid them. Uh, if, <laughs> if, they're, if they're your boss, get, get yeah. away from them because you won't change them. Yeah. Um, and you've got to help them find their happiness elsewhere. Maybe the setting is wrong, but sometimes there's just some pretty evil bastards, men and yeah. women, who are just they get pleasure from playing with people's emotions and lives. Oh. And you think you can reason yeah. with them and that they'll be understanding. And if you give them a bit of ground, mm. can you reason with Putin? Yeah. Is he, you know, everybody's been nice to him. Yeah, uh, it didn't stop him then invading Ukraine, and people didn't think he'd go that far. And yeah, yeah. so you you get it from Putin down to just individuals in a team. So, so I don't want people to be paranoid, but you do have to wake up and smell the coffee. Yeah, and as one said, what is it you know now about him or her that mm. you'll find out in a year's time if yeah. you delay doing something? Well, I know now that they'll never, never be a good fit, and they're destroying our culture. So yeah, what are yeah. you going to do? I'm going to be firm in the decision and kind in how I execute it to let them leave yeah. with dignity. I think but you can, through leadership, see it coming. So, you know, part of leadership is to know your people. And I think I think sometimes leaders I've met don't really invest enough time in understanding the nature of the people who are in the team with them. You know, what I learned very quickly as a soldier, you know, you you you. you you, your first command as a troop is only 12 people. I mean, one, you're one of them. So actually, it's only 11. There's nothing. I mean, you infantry guys had three times the amount. But, but the point is that it was 11 people. And you had one or two who were outstanding, naturally talented. And you had, at the other end, you know, some really challenged people. So the question is, you know, how do you make that team a winning team? And, and, and Morden College is the same. You know, we're a very frontline business. There are some great people. And there are some not so great people. But you can take the both extremes, but I think you cannot take the disruptive ones. You know, I, I really think they are the tossers of life. And, and if they can't move on, then they need to go because, because I, I just really can't emphasize more this point that the team in the end, the team is more important than the individual. Yeah, uh, so true. Tough, but it's true. No, no, I, I think it's very yeah. true. And on many occasions, you know, had it at, at a CEO level with the group CEO of an organization, and I said, your CEO is toxic in that. Yeah. Oh, but he makes more money than any other. Bits of the... Yeah, he may do. Yeah. But I assure you that when you do have the courage to get rid of him because he's a bully, he's unpleasant to people, he's very toxic, he undermines yeah. you, 
that actually the team below him will probably make more money without him suppressing and controlling. Yeah. And sure enough, he, he they, they made the decision to get rid of the person. They exited them. And within six months, they had made 30% more than they had before. And the yeah. engagement levels of that organization went up. And they went, how can this be? Well, yeah, it's, yeah. it's not brain. Yeah, it's not rocket science. Um, final, final two questions is favorite book. And then we'll do the top tip. Um, your... A, a book that you've listened to or read recently that you'd recommend to others, David, about leadership or it might could be someone's autobiography, biography, something that is going to help people listening to be a better leader, in your opinion. And it's just very interesting yeah. book. Well, if I may, there are two. And I, but the, one, because I've been a soldier, but I was also, also spent a decade in the, in the care sector. So the first is a book that I absolutely love reading when I first read, and I've read it twice since, which is. Colin Powell's My American Journey. I think it's a wonderful thing. His journey itself is very inspiring. But I think what I love is his, the way he described loyalty, you know, which is about, you know, before you make a decision, everybody in the team and joining in the discussion to find the right way to go. But at some stage, that's loyalty. At some stage, the, the leader has to make a decision because that's how it works. And then you need to stand behind that decision as though, it were your own decision, whether you like it or not, that's loyalty. And I, I, I think that definition of loyalty is good. It worked for me. And I think we need to reinvest in that understanding of loyalty in teams around in this country. And actually, it probably starts from the top in government. Um, the, the second book is, is about health and well-being. And I recently read it. And it's by a man called Atal, Atul Gawundi, who uh, is an Indian-American I'm kind of guessing he's just an amazingly wonderful man. And he wrote a book called Being Mortal. And it's about the journey of life and, 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 and aging in particular. And what I love about that book, Jonathan, is this emphasis on community. It's kind of like what we've been talking about through this wonderful podcast I'm doing with you. You know, it's, just, it's sort of like the team, isn't it? But I think the, the, the ideals around that, that Gawundi describes are... 100% germane to our societies today, more than it has ever been. And I would encourage everybody, particularly at our sort of age, but everybody to engage with being mortal. Yeah, uh, I both um, books I, I really love. Colin Powell, such an inspirational guy. And, and yeah. his, his other book was it worked for me in leadership and in life. Is it, is I've, it, I've read that too. And, is it, is it cracking yeah. book? and I was privileged to meet him when I was working in uh, the North Atlantic Alliance uh, in shape. I went across with Dee Sakir and uh, he um, was Secretary of State at the time. And before, you know, he took a bit of a fall in the end, we know, but he was very inspiring. What I loved about him, he was kind of really interested in me. You know, he was a big man, but gave me two minutes. And in those two minutes, I really felt he was interested in me. Another very important aspect of leadership. Yeah. And, and yeah. it's only people like the late Her Majesty the Queen, Diana, oh, yeah. people like Colin Powell, who have that ability yeah. to really be interested in you. Not, not in an inauthentic way. They genuinely yeah. make you feel like you're the only person in the room. And he uh, had a tough first 25, probably 30 years or more. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, um, he, he did. Uh, yeah. Fascinating story, and and then the second theme, being mortal, which I have also listened to. Uh, I've read a number of books. Funny enough, about death and dying. I suppose it's with with one brother being attacked and the other one 
dying within 10 weeks, like, like you losing your sister, um, that it, it's the stage of life we're at where having a good life and a good death, as the Stoics would say, is very yeah. important. That We need to face the fact yeah. and not to be suddenly shocked by the fact we find ourselves dying, but that, that we we know we're mortal and that, that the time will come. Yeah, it's not a taboo. And that's no. certainly doing my current job has been really helpful in that, you know, because we don't talk about it, but basically, you know, everybody's heading to the last bus stop at some stage along that journey. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's a question of how you get them there. And I think the good life to the end is a theme that we run here, which I love, actually. You know, I could talk about it for hours, but I I think there can be a good life even when you're very ill. Um, but you have to come at it slightly differently. We're a little bit reactive in the way we look after people in this country. We need to be far more proactive to be preventative. But even if we can't be preventative, we can be proactive to give no, them a good life. I think it's a, it's a fascinating topic that you're on. And, and I'm a great believer that we need to move up upstream to yeah. actually help people's health and well-being. I want to die young at a ripe old age. Yeah, yeah. I want I want to screech across that line at 99 and, and, and 360 days. Yeah. Going, wow, what a ride. And I yeah. don't I don't want my health span to run out before my lifespan does. And too many people, their health span yeah. runs out some 10 to 15 years earlier. And well, it that... does. And I but I think, you know, we're getting better at it. And and um and I it's a huge subject actually, but you know, maybe we could talk about it again. But I it, it really interests me because of my job. So we are leading a program that is about the good life in old age. And what does that really mean in practice that enables you to have a good life at every stage? And even though you become more frail and there may be comorbidities and so on, that doesn't mean you can't have a good life. But but but, but it's a, like everything. You've got to apply a science to that and then really understand how you're going to support people to have a good life. We don't do enough of that. Yeah. As a, society. a really important topic. And I think you you ought to, uh, I'm sure you've given a talk about it, but I, I look forward to hearing it. Let's end, because uh, this has been such fun. We've, we've slightly run oh, on, but it, because it's been so good, I, I, I couldn't give up on this. Um, your, if you just do an introduction and your two-minute top leadership tip, please, David, just to end off with. Yeah. I am David Rutherford-Jones, known more often as David RJ. I um, was a soldier for 34 years, which I loved, and I'm recently been the CEO of Morden College, which is a charity that operates in the UK care sector. We provide homes, love, care and support for over 300 people on two sites in South London. And we also have a sort of outreach grant giving um, organisation that provides uh, support to other older people in our country who want to stay living at home, but, but really need our support to be able to do so. And so we do that as well. My top tip to aspiring leaders is Build strong teams. Invest in building strong teams. It's simple, really. You know, my experience is that a, a team that is professionally competent, really on top of its game, a team that is cohesive, really pulling together in one direction, and a team that is, above all else, happy, 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 is a team that is going to be far more effective in delivering its output than the sum of the individual talents within that team. And I, time and time again, I've seen that to be the case. But I, and I think what I would say is, it's everybody in the team has to play a part in that, building that team. But nobody is going to be playing a part harder than the leader, and the leader needs to understand that. And a further small tip to, 
to, to go with that in, in that context for the leader is be visible. I really believe in visible leadership. You can't be visible all the time. And indeed, you need to create the space to do the thinking, which is so fundamental to strong leadership. I get that. But you can be visible. You can choose when and where to be visible at the right time. And it can be so impactful. And it's not about being visible on, on the platform you and I are on. It's about getting amongst your people and knowing when to do that. So there you go. My top tip is invest in strong teams and be a visible leadership. And I've really enjoyed myself, Jonathan. Thank you so much indeed. Well, um, General David Rutherford Jones, CB, CEO of Morden College, thank you very much indeed. Uh, fascinating conversation. We could have gone on for a lot longer, but it's been an honor having you on the Inspire Leadership podcast. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Jonathan. Bye. Bye. So now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you going to do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you.